The Islamic Republic of Iran is facing greater difficulties exporting oil due to sanctions. The revenue from oil has been a lifeline for the Republic and the sanctions are causing problems both at home and abroad. Today, we're talking with Homoyun Falak Shahi, a senior downstream analyst for Wood Mackenzie and Iranian and French citizen. We discuss sanctions in both Iran and Venezuela and their wider implications for the oil market, new developments in OPEC and the role of green investments for big oil companies. This is the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. First of all, can you tell me a bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and why did you study in France? Uh, so my name is Homoyen uh, Farak Shahi. I'm um, uh, originally from Iran, uh, but I actually was born in Paris and, and I grew up in, in France. So it was all very natural that I studied in France. Um, I, a bit of background of, on, my, on myself, I did a... I did a master's in international relations in uh, Sciences Po Grenoble. Uh, and after this, I, I did a, another master's in this time in energy management at ESCP Europe, so ESCP in French, you know, the um, famous business school. Um, and since then, uh, after I finished, I was done with my with this master's, I, I joined uh, Wood Mackenzie. And it's been now close to five years, four years and a half that I am uh, within this, this. I want to talk a bit about Iran and what's going on there right now. At the moment, Iran is celebrating 40 years since the revolution. And they're also facing huge sanctions from the West, primarily from the American administration. So what's all this about? So, I mean, as, as you know, um, you know, since the revolution that took place in 1979, and especially the, the hostage crisis that followed, uh, Iran and the US are, are not the best friends uh, in the world. Um, and Iran, it's, it's not something new. I mean, Iran has been a country under sanctions for a very long time. Um, the first oil-related sanctions are date back from 1995. Um, and the interesting fact on this is that they actually followed just two weeks after um, the first oil deal signed between Iran after the revolution with a foreign company was done. And that oil deal was signed with, a, with, a, with an American company at the time, Conoco. Um, so now Conoco has become ConocoPhillips. It's one of the big oil companies in the world. Two weeks after that, you had the first sanctions, the first oil-related sanctions, which p- basically prevent uh, U.S. companies from investing in Iran and also make it difficult for other international companies to get in Iran. Um, now, this year around, so if, if you have followed the news, you probably have heard about you know, Donald Trump exiting the nuclear deal in May 2018 and reimposing the uh, sanctions on the oil sector or part of the sanctions because not all the sanctions were ever lifted. So the the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015 led to a lifting of a lot of international sanctions on Iran from the US, the EU and the UN. Um, A lot of sanctions were remaining in place but what Donald Trump did last year is that he reimposed the sanctions, the U.S. sanctions that were um, lifted back in 2016. Um, now, these sanctions, basically, the impact they have is they limit Iran's ability to export oil because they put a lot of pressure on their buyers. Um, the U.S. basically is trying to make it extremely difficult for uh, importers of uh, Iranian crude oil uh, with the threat of using sanctions against them if they do so. So if you want to buy Iranian oil, what are the options at the moment? So um, 
to give you a broad idea of, of what, um, you know, where Iranian oil goes and how significant it is. So I mean, just to put things into context, Iran produces around, has the capacity to produce around 4 million barrels per day. That's about 4% of the global oil supply today. So every day you have 100 million barrels being produced. 4% of it is from Iran. Um, and that oil before the sanctions from Trump were, uh, from the White House, were reimposed. Half of it basically uh, was going, sorry, excuse me, about a third was going to China, uh, another third to um, uh, India, and the remaining went to uh, European countries, uh, Turkey, as well as Japan and South Korea. Uh, what happened since the reimposition of sanctions is you had European companies stopped completely importing Iranian oil. And all the other importers, except China and India, really, the others also pretty much stopped importing oil. So what happened also on, on in November is the fact that Donald Trump issued, the White House issued waivers, sanctioned waivers. Basically, it's a, it's a legal option for importers of Iranian oil to be able to import Iranian oil without the risk of breaching U.S. sanctions. So before the sanctions were uh, reimposed, Iran was selling around 2.2 million barrels, uh, were exporting 2.2 million barrels of, uh, of crude oil per day, uh, and an additional 400,000 barrels of condensate. So basically, if you look at, to put it simply, uh, oil together, 2.6 million barrels per day. Now, this has decreased more than half. Now, it's around 1.2 million barrels per day, 1.3 million barrels per day. And this and is causing some problems in Iran, I assume. Yeah, in, indeed. I mean, um, if you look at the economy of Iran, uh, historically especially, it has been focused, it has been dependent on oil revenues a lot. Um, now, oil revenues in Iran, they make up around... 30% of GDP and around 50% of government revenue. So it's uh, it's it's the chunkiest part, it's the biggest part of government revenue, it's the biggest part of the GDP. But if you compare that situation with other countries in the region, like Iraq, for example, uh, it's much lower. So Iran is actually has actually a much more diversified economy compared to the likes of Iraq, Kuwait, or, or uh, Saudi Arabia. So in the short term, I think as long as Iran is able to maintain its exports above a certain threshold, um, they should be in a situation where they could handle the situation, the economic situation, which don't, you know, take me wrong, the situation has deteriorated because of, of this issue, uh, uh, less revenues, but also super high inflation. The local currency has decreased its value compared to, to the dollar and the, the euro around 70%, just over 12 months. So the situation is very bad, but if Iran is able to maintain its export above a certain threshold, they should be, the government, the, the Islamic Republic regime, should be able to overcome the, the, the storm. Sure, so what is, what is that threshold at the moment, and are they above it? Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think, unless you are the minister of petroleum of, of Iran, you know the, the exact number. Uh, there's a number I can speculate on, uh, but there's only to you know it's it's only to a certain um, amount of of, um, of certainty. I would say I would say if 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 uh, exports go below seven hundred seven fifty thousand barrels 
a day yeah. of uh, oil uh, for a long time. And when I say long time, it's a period of six months at least. Uh, then it could be it could become quite problematic for the for the government. But again, this is not what I expect to we expect as a company sure. to. Well, if that's the case, if we're seeing, if we think it's unlikely that Iran is really going to be put under serious trouble with the sanctions, then what's the point? The point of sanctions. Yes. Point of sanctions, obviously, from from the the white house administration is to put a lot of pressure on uh, on iran i guess if you look at the who is in the white house at the moment and his advisors they are uh, kind of new hawks hawks against uh, iran so very tough stance against iran and the, the islamic republic i guess you know when it comes to to sanction there's only there's only a, a certain amount you can do. Uh, the first thing is, do sanctions ever have ever worked? There's there's barely any example of countries where sanctions have led to government collapse. I suppose, you know, basic economic theory shows that putting sanctions harms your own country as much as the target country. Yeah, I mean, um, when it comes to the U.S., they don't. You know, you, the U.S. didn't import any oil from Iran, so for them, it's not uh, it's not impacting their, uh, their 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 economy. Actually, the U.S. you know has oil production increasing quite rapidly, and they hope that they can replace some of the Iranian uh, barrel. So in in that way, it makes sense. Um, it's also, I think, if you if you're the U.S. and you have put sanctions on Iran, what you are doing is you preventing further investment from international companies to get in the to get in the country uh, so investment now is really trickling from from foreign companies it's almost nothing especially in, in oil and gas um, you have some some investment going on but it's nothing compared to the countries around like iraq saudi arabia so basically you sanction what sanctions are doing is they are diverting the investment community in, in energy from iran they're not going to these companies are not going into Iran. The only options Iran have has at the moment are uh, maybe one small state company from Russia and, and, and state companies from China. The main issue now for Iran is whether these companies from China will be uh, will have the green light for from their government to get into Iran. And this is not certain anymore. All right. So the U.S., of course, have put in sanctions in Venezuela recently. Um, do you think they'll be more harmful to the United States than the Iranian sanctions? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. I think the main difference is the U.S. was doing business and U.S. companies were doing business with Venezuela when that wasn't the case with Iran. So you had no U.S. company investing in Iran, at least in the energy space, and uh, acquire and acquiring uh, oil or gas from, from, from Iran. While if you look at U.S. and Venezuela, um, m- almost half of Venezuela's production was exported to the U.S. So the U.S. was critically important to Venezuela, but also for the U.S. refiners which imported that crude from Venezuela it was critical for them uh, because the, the you have to understand that the specificity of crude oil produced by Venezuela is that it's it's a very heavy quality crude and that fits some of the refinery specifications yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. 
yeah, we're seeing um, negative crack spreads on things which refiners like to produce, like gasoline at the moment. Yeah. And heavy oil being more expensive than uh, than light oil. Exactly. I mean, so if you look at, you think of, uh, you can put yourself in a U- U.S. refiner's boots from the Gulf of Mexico. They have the choice now. They can't uh, import any more from Venezuela. Venezuela was just, you know, maybe three, four days away by tanker. So the tanker leaving Venezuela will arrive three, four days later in um, in uh, Houston or, you know, refineries in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, what's happening is that you can't replace this with incremental production locally because that crude is not doesn't have the same quality. You can do it, but it's going to take time and it's not that automatic. So you have to find similar quality products, similar quality crude than Venezuela. And that crude most likely is going to come from countries like Saudi Arabia, like Iraq. And simply because of the distance, it's going to, to cost more to, to bring over to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and also because there's now a shortage of uh, heavy crude because Venezuela can't export as much. And Iran's crude also, to some extent, is heavy. So there's a sort of, there's a sort of shortage when it comes to that quality of crude. And so the the pr- you know just looking at the economics of it, the pricing of it will increase. So it, it will basically cost more for the U.S. refiners to you know to to to, to run the refineries <laughs> compared sure. to a few few weeks ago. Sure. All right. Let's talk a bit about OPEC. So last year, big announcement was that Qatar left OPEC, and uh, now you've got the United States, Canada, China, Russia, Qatar, all big producers of oil and gas none of them are in OPEC so is OPEC still a relevant organization um so the first thing is Qatar was only a marginal player in in the OPEC the first thing and why the reason is because Qatar is a rather small oil producer rather is is a huge gas producer but not a big oil producer Qatar is the fourth largest gas producer in the world but in terms of oil it was it wasn't even in the top 15 or top 20. Um, so the implications for OPEC, I mean, first of all, I think that the reason, the cause is really down to that, uh, in the relations of Qatar and its neighbors, especially UAE and Saudi Arabia souring. So I think that's the direct impact of, of that. Um, but the implications are, are rather small for, for OPEC because Qatar was only, it re- only represented about 2% of OPEC's crude uh, oil output. So it never really made sense for Qatar to be in OPEC. I mean, you look at Oman, for example, Oman produces more oil than, than Qatar and is not part of the OPEC. So you might argue that leaving OPEC was a good strategy for Qatar. I think to some extent, yes, because it, it, they, they are not bound by the um, the decisions that OPEC ca- OPEC can take, uh, so they don't have to cut production anymore. Uh, even though because the production of of oil so six hundred thousand barrels per day was relatively small, so even if they were asked to cut, it would have been a relatively small cut. But yes, I mean um, this really means that for them, first of all, they're not bound to to follow the decisions that OPEC OPEC takes. Uh, I think it's it's most of all it's it's a strong message that they are sending to uh, their neighbors, so Saudi Arabia and, and UAE, to say that you know we are they basically um, are unharmed by the, the, the their neighbors' decision to to cut relations with them, and also if you look at Qatar, 
the the main story now in Qatar is the fact that they want to expand their LNG production. At the moment, they're the largest producer with 77 million tons per year, and they want to reach to, to bring that to 110 million tons per year. And they are negotiating with companies from the US, from Europe, from Asia. So basically, the whole industry is interested to get in Qatar for a lot of reasons. So the, the, they have the, the world's biggest gas field under their waters. Uh, it's relative. It's very low cost to, to develop compared to other places like Australia or like the US. Um, and so I think in the you know over the past 18 months, Qatar has for the for, for the moment has been winning its its sort of cold war against uh, these two countries. And we see something else happening, which is that the Trump administration are somewhat hostile to OPEC. In fact, I've heard they're trying to push through legislation which aims to prosecute OPEC members for price fixing. Why would the US do this? So I think um, it's it's really down to, I mean, it, it's not going to have a huge impact. I can't really see, um, to be honest, uh, the US really prosecuting countries like Saudi Arabia or Iraq. Yeah. So so to me, it's that, that you know, law that is getting passed is, is really um, more symbolic than, than anything else. And I think it's it's more um, a message that lawmakers in the U.S. want to send to uh, to their voters in the U.S. So basically, they you know over the past few months, years, uh, Trump has accused a few times uh, the OPEC of being responsible for the spike in the oil price uh, in the middle of 2018. Uh, and I think uh, again, this what what is going on here is 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 just a message to to local to voters in in the U.S. to say we are looking at you know what the OPEC is doing, and we are we're doing our best, and we will do anything that that is required uh, to ensure that you know the the energy market in the U.S. is well supplied and that uh, the at an affordable cost for uh, for the for households. So. Um Oil demand in rich countries seems to be flattening. But there's a lot of demand that's coming from developing countries. You said earlier that you think we're going to see a peak in oil demand. Do you think this is really true? Yeah, I think, uh, and, and that's an interesting point, is the fact that in the theories uh, looking at you know energy uh, markets, you've most often have heard of peak oil production rather than demand because supply. Because we're thinking that reserves were depleting, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh, in fact, what has happened is that over the past twenty, thirty years, there's new technologies that have allowed companies to always increase their reser- reserves, get access to more and more difficult, more and more challenging oil and gas fields. So there doesn't seem to be a real issue in terms of supply. However, on demand, and you're completely right to say it. We think that there will be peak oil production, and mainly because there will be peak oil demand, uh, and that's driven by the fact that now, if you look at the power mix and the global energy mix, even just beyond power, uh, the growth in renewables in uh, other sources of, en- of energy like gas is increasing uh, much higher than than oil. So we think that oil is still going to remain the key source of energy uh, supply. To if you look at the global energy mix. Around 33%. I think it would probably decrease to around 30%. Um, and so we think that this um, this will have an impact on on global uh, demand. So you think future demand is going to be affected by electric vehicles? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, absolutely. To some extent, it's going to be impacted by by, by this. 
um, to be honest, not by a, we don't we don't think electric cars is going to overtake uh, you know gasoline diesel cars, uh, but but yeah, it's going to, and I, and I think it's also down to the fact of if you look at the metals and mining side of the story, uh, you know in order to build those batteries that are put into these electric cars, uh, there's a story of uh, maybe not being enough supply uh, on the earth to to provide this. So so I think that that growth of electric cars is limited to to this, but it is going to have a huge impact on uh, on oil because 60% of the oil produced in the world is used in the transport sector, and then the rest is mostly used in the pet cams and other sectors and also that part is going to be impacted by the growing use of gas in the in the pet cam sector okay um so let's say oil demand peaks oil demand flattens what happens in the middle east is this going to be a problem not necessarily i mean it, it it is a problem because the countries in the region depend a lot on uh, this resource so if you look at Iraq, for example, the, the government revenues depend 97% on uh, the sale of oil, on the revenues. Now, you have more diversified economy like Iran and uh, UAE, which depend around, for, for Iran, it's maybe around closer to 50% for, for the revenues. For the UAE, it's, it's lower than this, it's around 30%. Um, so I think it, it is a, an issue for these countries in, in, in terms of getting away from that oil curse, you know, they depend too much on on the oil price uh, fluctuations. Uh, however, the the key thing to note is uh, the Middle East is the lowest cost producing region for oil. So um, I think that it has been and it is the the main region that it produces about one third of of oil at the moment uh, versus the. You know, it produces about one third of um, of global oil um, at the moment, and I think this share is actually could increase because you will have a bigger decline from uh, other regions like uh, Africa or Asia Pacific. Uh, so I think because of its low cost and because of its great geology, the the Middle East is going to remain so the last place to to produce oil. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, I've seen from from Wood Mac that you predict a massive decrease in production from Asian oil producers. Uh, however, there's increased demand in Asia. In fact, all of the increased demand in LNG and oil, most of it's coming from Asia. So what do you do if you're an Asian oil producer and you're in this situation? Yeah, so that's, um, that's, a, that's a big big issue for for these uh, asian economies as you said their demand in both oil and gas is increasing quite fast especially china is obviously leading the the trend but india will is following as well um the key issue for these oil and gas companies from these places from these countries is that their home resources to which they have a huge exposure are declining very fast and this is why their production compared to companies like you know the majors, Total, Exxon, etc. This is why their their production from these Asian companies is decreasing quite fast. The impact, and this is something they have already started to do. You know, they're, they're not just starting to look at this right now. It has started to happen already from a few decades ago. They are internationalizing. Um, now you have a lot of deals being signed uh, between Chinese companies, for example, in the Middle East, in Africa. You have uh, Petronas of Malaysia, for example, is, is present in, in a lot of other countries, including, for example, Mexico, Chad, uh, the UAE. So they are international internationalizing. Oh, 
they are internationalizing and the key point for them is to find that security of supply for their population so what they will do is that they will find the volume from elsewhere and obviously where can you find huge volumes uh, you know first region is the Middle East so this is a, a natural region for them to to get into I want to talk a bit about gas markets in the Middle East barely any gas export there's one outlier which is Qatar so why is this yeah, I mean, that's, uh, as you said, that's a funny point about the Middle East. It's a huge oil exporter. So huge oil producer, huge oil exporter, huge gas producer because of Iran and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, but not a huge gas exporter. And as you said, Qatar is really the, ma the main outlier. Um, and the fact is, the reason why is simply because domestic consumption is huge. Um, on a per capita basis, both for oil and gas, it's, um, you know, it's probably around the most is probably among the most uh, per capita intensive countries and demand for gas it's the same trend that we're seeing in the middle east and the same that we've seen elsewhere for example in in, in asia uh, that you have gas consumption increasing extremely fast so you have gas going to you know power generation going to households for uh, cooking etc is it related to um the limited availability of LNG? Um, for for some countries, yes. So, for example, Iran. So, Iran is the third largest producer in the world, gas producer, uh, after the US and Russia. But you know what? Iran's share of the world gas trade is, is around 1%. So, they ba barely export any gas. And that's because their consumption is also the fourth highest in the world for gas. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, to give you an idea, they consume pretty much as much as China, which has a po which has a population 15 times higher. So I think the issues, the, the main issue here is the the question of subsidies. Um, the fact that because these countries are so resource rich, the population consider the the resources as naturally given. And so sure. they so are gas is very very cheap, cheap in, yeah, exactly in Iran. Uh, not just in Iran, in, in the whole region, but yeah, in Iran as well. And uh, and and it's something that is also an issue in the mindset of the people. So if you go, for example, to Iran in the you know in the north of the country in Tehran, it can be quite cold in the summer, and so people would uh, have high consumption for gas in the summer to simply for heating purposes, and if it's too hot inside you know in the in, in the flats even if it's in the middle of winter and the outside temperature is minus five instead of instead of bringing the thermostat down they would simply open the window so that's uh yeah the, the key issue here is subsidies and low price of so um all right you see a trend amongst the majors in which they seem to be finding and producing a lot more gas so is this because that's just what they're finding and they're taking what they can get or is this because they're actually responding to demand um it's a bit of both and i could also add it's also down to uh, environmental uh, reasons so gas when you burn gas it produces about um 25 percent less co2 than uh, than oil um so that's more environmentally friendly and and uh, as we discussed already uh, the consumption of gas is growing faster than than that of oil so they are responding to to demand but it's also the fact that uh, the very big oil fields globally have already been discovered pretty much and that most of the discoveries that are being made 
especially in hot spots like uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, for example, or uh, or offshore Australia are uh, gas fields. So that that also explains why. All right. So oil price. Um, they say it's never going to go above a hundred dollars a barrel, never again. So why not? We know that um, the American market high production of shale oil it's holding the price down but i don't think this is going to go on forever so why is oil price going to stay below 100 dollars um yeah that's a very good point i mean you never know what's going to happen right so you can al- there could always be uh, you know a huge crisis or a rocket sent from iran to saudi arabia or the country and the gulf of the strait of hormuz is uh, closed and that could bring the oil price way above $100 a barrel. So so the, the, it could always happen. Uh, but in, in our base case scenario, where obviously it's difficult to predict wars and conflicts, etc., we don't see this happening. And, and that's because, as you said it, the U.S. now uh, attracts a lot of investment, a huge amount of investment. Uh, and most of the growth is happening, especially in the Permian Basin in Texas. And... Um, the main difference is that in the U.S., if you find oil in the ground, uh, that oil belongs to the person who owns that piece of land, basically. And that's only in the U.S. that you have this. Uh, anywhere else, if you find oil below ground, it, it will belong to the state. And so that uh, contributes to the fact that there's huge investment going on in the U.S. and the fact that they are able to react, basically, very quickly to the shifts in oil prices. So if the oil price goes above a hundred dollars you would expect a lot more drilling going on a lot more investment and obviously production could sure. increase as sure, a result. Sure, sure. My, my final question is um is that we're seeing some increases in renewable spending from oil companies so you think this is a, a pr move or are we actually serious uh, i think it's a bit of both uh, it's probably a lot more pr at the moment than, than real stuff um our view is that less than 3% of their uh, capital spend goes into renewables, less than 3%. So it's, I mean, it's, it's still quite big compared to a few years ago. It was zero. So it, it is huge growth, um, even compared to some other parts of the businesses uh, of the business. It's growing much faster uh, and it is going to continue growing a lot faster. But it's also a lot of PR and uh, oil and gas companies in the medium term, in the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, they will remain mainly oil and gas companies. Sure. Um, all right, thank you very much. Uh, is there a place on the internet where people can find you? Like, have you got a Twitter handle, yeah, for example? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you type my name, I, I, know, I know I don't have a very common name, but <laughs> but you can find, yeah, if, if, if you type my name, you probably would find my Twitter handle, uh, hfalak, at hfalakshahi. Uh, and also on LinkedIn, um, yeah, you can you can find me quite easily. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhodar. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.